chapter 29, verse 1. This is the interlude. So this is the end of his third speech. And we're getting to the end of the third speech. These are the words of the covenant of Yahweh commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel. And the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them in Horeb. Moses proclaimed to all of Israel as follows. You have seen all that Yahweh did in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his servants in his land. Your eyes have seen the great judgment, those signs and mighty wonders. But to this very day, Yahweh has not given you an understanding mind, perceptive eyes or discerning ears. I have led you through the desert for 40 years. Now that's another way of saying you don't have a new heart. You don't have a new heart yet. You don't have the eyes or the ears to really understand the heart of God. And so I haven't given that yet to you. I have led you through the desert for 40 years. Your clothing has not worn out, nor have your sandals deteriorated. You've eaten no bread or drunk no wine or beer, and all so that you might know that I am Yahweh your God. When you came to this place, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan came out to make war and were defeated, and we defeated them. Then we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the terms of this covenant and obey them so that you might be successful in everything you do. You are standing today, all of you, before Yahweh your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officials, every Israelite man, your infants, your wives, and the foreigners living in your encampment, those who chop wood and those who carry water, so that you may enter by oath into the covenant Yahweh your God is making with you today. Today he will affirm that you are his people and that he is your God, just as he promised you and swore by an oath to your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this covenant by oath, but with whoever stands with us here today before Yahweh our God, as well as those not with us here today. I am making this covenant with you because I am your God and you are my people. Verse 16, For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we crossed through the nations as we traveled. You have seen their detestable things and idols of wood and stone and silver and gold. And beware the heart of no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you turns away from Yahweh your God today to pursue and serve the gods of those nations. Be aware that there is among you no root producing poisonous and bitter fruit. And when such person hears the words of this oath, he secretly blesses himself and says, I will have peace, though I continue to walk with a stubborn spirit. This will destroy the watered ground with the parch, and Yahweh will be unwilling to forgive him, and his intense anger will rage against that man. All the curses written in the scroll will fall upon him, and Yahweh will obliterate his name from memory. So basically he says, look, you've got to catch the rot quickly. Be aware of what's happening in your community. Be aware of everybody. Don't just think this is a tiny little disobedience. Be aware of this stuff. Deal with it quickly. And be aware, be warned of the man or the woman who says in their heart, I will do what I want, but I will look different on the outside. That will rot your community big time. Yahweh will single him out for judgment and from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant written in the scroll of the law. Verse 22, The generation came to you and your descendants who will rise up after you as well as a foreigner who will come from the distant places will see the affliction of that land and the illness of Yahweh has brought on it. The whole land will be covered with brimstone and salt and bring debris. Brimstone and salt, once you salt a land, it will never produce again. 
It will not be planted, nor will it be sprout or produce grass. It will resemble the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeboim, which Yahweh destroyed in his intense anger. Then all the nations will ask, Why has Yahweh done all this to the land? What is this fierce, heated display of anger all about? And the people will say, Because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, which he made with them, and when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's important. When the world asks, how could this happen to the chosen people? The answer will be, the people failed. That's the whole point. One of the major points of Judges is that people are going to accuse God of not honoring his promises because everything is falling apart in Judges. And the whole point of Judges is to make the argument, everything's falling apart because you disobeyed God. And this stuff is happening to you just like the covenant we made with each other said it would happen. It's not my failure to be faithful. It's your failure to be faithful. And here's the other thing you must remember. I talked about this before. But God is faithful both in his covenant promises and also in his judgments. We like it when God is faithful in his promises to bless. But we don't like it when he's faithful in his promises to curse. And you need to understand that both the curse and the blessings are in the covenant. So when the land falls apart, God is faithful to his word. And when the land is being blessed, God is faithful to his word. It is not he that fails, it is us. He is always faithful to his word, whether it's cursing or blessing, because that's what his word said. Verse 26, They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know, and they did not permit them to worship. That is why Yahweh's anger erupted against the land, bringing on it the curses written on the scroll. So Yahweh has uprooted them from their land in anger, wrath, and great rage, has deported them to another land as clear today. Secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but those who are revealed belong to us and our descendants forever so that we might obey all the words of this law. Now the secret thing is basically there are things that we will not fully understand. And to a certain extent, I can give you a lot of good explanations for why God is doing all this kind of stuff. But in the bigger sense, he's God and I'm not. And he's revealed a lot of himself to us. But there's a lot of things that we will still never fully understand why he does what he does. But we know enough about God to know that he's good. That brings us to chapter 30. Now this is a good chapter. I mean, they're all good chapters, but I mean like a heartwarming chapter. This is the next covenant that God is going to make with humanity. The first covenant that God makes is the Adamic covenant. In that, he says, if you obey me and don't eat, take knowledge in the wrong way, then I will allow you to dwell in the land, you'll be fruitful and multiply, and you'll dwell with me, and I'll bless you. And they don't, and they lose that. Then he comes along and he makes another covenant with him called the Noahic covenant. In Noahic covenant, he says, I promise never again to just massively wipe out the world in a flood. There's no requirements in that covenant. He just promises an unconditional covenant forever. Then he comes along to Abraham and makes another covenant with humanity. This is also an unconditional covenant. But where the Noahic covenant was for all humanity, the Abrahamic covenant is only for the descendants of Abraham and anyone who chooses to be a part of the covenant by faith. So the Noahic covenant has no requirements. You just do it. The Abrahamic covenant has no requirements for the people in the covenant, but it does require you to be in the covenant. So you don't have to volunteer to be a part of the Noahic covenant, but you do have to volunteer to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's where he lays out his dream. 
if you want to say it that way, his vision that I will bless you, give you land, make you a great nation so that you'll be a blessing to the entire world. That becomes the foundational covenant. It's an unconditional covenant that God will always honor. That's the only reason he doesn't walk away from. It's the only reason he doesn't walk away from because of the Abraham covenant. Then he comes along and he makes another covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant says you will be blessed if you obey, you'll be cursed if you disobey. And because they never can obey really truly, this is why Paul says the law always brings death. And this is unconditional. It's conditional in the sense that they disobey the covenants to an end. But here's the weird, this is the character of God. The law says if you sin and disobey, God will kill you and the covenant's over with because you broke the covenant, therefore there's no more covenant. But God also made an unconditional covenant with him through Abraham saying, I will make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll never leave you. So when they come to the Mosaic covenant and they violate it and worship the golden calf, technically God has every right to kill them all and bring it into the covenant and walk away and abandon them completely. But the minute that Moses says, please don't do that, forgive us, then God says, okay, because the Abrahamic covenant requires God by his own word and his own character to come back and renew the Mosaic covenant. But then they violate the Mosaic covenant and he has every right to get rid of it because it's a conditional covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant creates a heart desire in him to renew the Mosaic covenant again. And so basically what you have throughout the next 700 years is you have this God that says, the Mosaic Covenant says, I'll only bless you if you're obedient, but the Abrahamic Covenant says, I'll never abandon you. So you keep disobeying it, so I keep getting rid of the Mosaic Covenant, but because I love you and because of my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to renew the Mosaic Covenant. So he just keeps renewing it, renewing it, and renewing it, and renewing it over and over and over again. And they never get punished in the way that they should be, as in like completely wiped out. This is the point that Paul makes, is that God never really truly punished him like he should have. That's why he has to pour out all of his wrath on Jesus to fulfill the law. And so what God is saying is, we can't do this forever. I can't just, based on my own character, keep renewing this covenant over and over and over again because of the Abrahamic covenant. Because though the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal, unconditional promise to you, the Mosaic covenant says that you can only really be blessed if we have a relationship. And you don't really want a relationship, so we just keep going through this cycle over and over and over again, and nothing changes. And that's not what I want. And that's what will set them up. So as they keep going through this over and over again, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, again. Oh my gosh, again. Oh my gosh, again. Oh my gosh. And you're supposed to feel that by the end of the First Testament. So that when the prophets come, they say, in Jeremiah 31, 31, a day will come when God will make a new covenant a covenant not like the old covenant that could not change them that just kept bringing this endless cycle but a covenant where the law will be written on their hearts they'll be given a new law and a new heart and joel says a new heart and joel says the holy spirit will be poured upon them and that's when you realize that they the mosaic law was never meant to be everlasting it couldn't do anything and that's the point that paul's going to make that brings us to the restoration covenant of chapter 30. Because here's the thing. He's just given them the Mosaic covenant, and they know they're not going to be able to do it. In fact, Moses ends his speech with saying, you're not going to be able to do this. It's like so anti-motivational. 
Here's the law. And if you do it, God will bless you. But you won't be able to do it. Bye. Have fun in the land. I mean, that's basically what he does. So what do you do with that? That's like depressing. That's why the restoration covenant is so important. Because this is where you get your compliment sandwich. Because you have the Abrahamic covenant that God says, I will bless you. I will make you my people and I will never abandon you. But then you get the Mosaic covenant that says, but you have to be obedient and you can never do that. But then it ends with the restoration covenant that says, but one day I will make you different so that you can. Now, a lot of people want to see the restoration covenant as part of the Mosaic. They don't see it as a different covenant. But the problem is the Mosaic covenant says you have to do this in order to get this. And it's all these laws and they're not able to do it. When we get to chapter 30, you don't see any if then. Not really powerful. It's really based in the character of God. Other people call this the Palestinian covenant because it's a promise to restore them back to the land. The problem with this is, one, you can't call it the Palestinian covenant because that's like a huge insult to God. Because you have to realize that it's called the land of Canaan. When they come into it, it becomes the land of Israel. And then one of the enemies that they keep fighting over and over again and never successfully drive out are the Philistines. When the Roman Empire comes along and occupies them, the Roman Empire hates the Jews. Everybody hates the Jews for reasons that's a whole other story. And they decide to insult the Jews by calling it the land of Philistia, which is the Philistines. But in Latin, it's the word Palestine. And they call the land of Israel Palestine as an insult to the Jews that we're naming this land after your greatest, most anti-God enemy. So when the Jews get kicked out of the land in 135 AD, about 100 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, they're all scattered across the earth. Later, when the British Empire comes in, they take over the land of Israel in the Middle East and control a lot of things. And after World War II, they're kind of like, oops, because England realized that a lot of Jews were fleeing to England and America, and we said, we don't want you, and we sent them all back to Germany. And then when we invaded Germany and saw the concentration camps, we were like, oh, that's what we were sending them back to. And then Britain felt so guilty that in the British Mandate of 1948, they gave up the land of Israel to Israel and said, it's yours. You can have it now. This is our, we're sorry, kind of a gift. And at that moment, they came in. But at that point, when Israel was kicked out of the land in 135 AD, all these other people began to settle the land. And then around 570 AD, a man by the name of Muhammad rose up in the Middle East, and he started a conquest of Islam across the land. And Israel became dominated by Arabic people or people who converted to Islam. And so when the Jews started coming back into Israel, the Muslims said, this is our land. We've been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can't just come in and claim rights. And we don't recognize the British Empire. They're white people. And Israel said, no, this is our land. God gave this to us. And that's when the Muslim people responded by calling it the land of Palestine. To do the same thing to Israel that the Romans did. So when you call it Palestine, or you call it the Palestinian Covenant, it's kind of a slap in the face to the Jews. 
and a slap in the face to God, kind of, because God told him to get rid of the Philistines, and the Philistines don't have a rightful land, and yet you're calling it that land. And I know, don't worry, there's no judgment from God. There's called this, remember, the sacrifice is also atoned for sins of ignorance. So, but you just can't call it, now that you know, don't use it. But this isn't really about the land. Because even then we learn from Daniel that bringing them back to the land doesn't really bring an end to the exile. And then two, we're not in that land because later when the prophets come along, they develop the idea that the land is way more than just this land. It's the entire world. But that requires Ezekiel and Zechariah to understand that. And so this isn't really the land covenant either. This is why I think it's better to call it the restoration covenant because that's what the real promise is, to restore them. And in some ways, it's restore them back to the land. But the most important thing that God is saying here is to restore them back to him. Here is why I see this as a completely different covenant. Because without this part, the Mosaic covenant is depressing. It's hopeless. But the, what the restoration covenant does is it roots you back in the Abrahamic covenant and says, don't worry. The Mosaic covenant is to teach you that there's something wrong with you so that you'll cling to the restoration covenant where God is going to do something different with you. So in chapter 30, verse 1, when you've experienced all these things, both the blessings and the curses I have set before you, you will reflect upon them in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. So when you're in exile and you're looking back at your history, in fact, that's why the book of Kings was written, to explain the Kings was written after the exile. They're in exile. And the prophets gather together, and, there's, and the Jews are like, why are we in exile? And the kings, the prophets write the book of Kings to explain, this is why you're in exile. So one could say, while you're in exile, reading the book of Kings, and remembering, oh yeah, that's why we're in exile, then if you and your descendants turn to Yahweh your God and obey him with your whole mind and being, just as I am commanding you today, Yahweh your God will reverse your captivity and have pity on you. He will turn and gather you from all the peoples among whom he has scattered you. And even if your exiles are in the most distant land, from there Yahweh your God will gather you and bring you back. Then he will bring to you the land your ancestors possess, and he also will possess it. He will do better for you and multiply you more than he did your ancestors. Yahweh your God will also cleanse, will also circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your mind and being, and so that you may live. Then Yahweh your God will put all these curses on your enemies and all those who hate you and persecute you, and you will return and obey Yahweh, keeping all the commandments I am giving you today. And Yahweh your God will make the labor of your hands abundantly successful, multiply your children and the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your soil. For Yahweh your God will once more rejoice over you and make you prosperous, just as he rejoiced over your ancestors. If you obey Yahweh your God and keep his commandments and statutes that are written on his scroll of law, but you must turn to him with your whole mind and being. This is the restoration covenant. There are four blessings in the Restoration Covenant. And this is very understanding. Now, so he starts off by saying, if you repent and come back to me, then I'll do these four things. Now, that makes it sound conditional. And it kind of is until you get into the blessings and you realize that God is going to do something that reverses the conditionality of that all. So God says, when you're in exile 
and you've learned the lesson that God is making through the exile, and you want to repent now and come back, then God will do this. First, He will return you back to the promised land. The first thing He will do is restore you back to the promised land. He'll give you back to the land. Because remember, there is no blessing or covenant outside the land. Now remember, I just told you, the book of Daniel tells us that even though they return back to the land, that's technically not the end of their exile because nothing has changed in their heart. And that the true end of exile is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying is that you need to realize that land really is no longer really technically the land of Canaan. Because the land never really has ever been just the land of Canaan. What was the land originally in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. And what were they supposed to do with the garden? Expanded across the entire planet. And even when God put them in Canaan, did he want them just to stay Canaan forever? No, eventually he said, you're going to have all the land of the Euphrates, and and then eventually you're going to be in the entire world. Then when we get to the prophets, now you have to understand, you have to understand chapters 27 through 30, are so important for you to understand to understand the prophets. Because all the prophets are about these chapters. All the prophets are about the cursings and the exile and the restoration covenant. And if you don't understand 27 through 30, you will not understand what the prophets are saying over and over and over again. So when you get to the prophets, the prophets start emphasizing something huge. They start prophesying a day that Israel returned back to the land. But the prophets focus on some pretty major things. They say a return to the land means this. You will have a messianic king that will rule over you. And he will bring a new Israel that will cover the entire earth. All evil will be eliminated and people will be righteous. And all the nations will be in this new Israel. So the prophets make it very clear that the return to the land means land equals messianic king, the entire world is the land, all the nations are included, people are righteous, and there is no evil. So when Daniel comes along and says, are we returning to the land? All the angel says is, did you not pay attention to the prophets? The prophets say it's not just about a return to the land. The land equals the Garden of Eden. The land, return to the land, equals God is going to do what he's always wanted to do. And it's also important to understand the prophets, understand what Jesus is doing when he comes into Jerusalem at the end of Luke chapter 19. Because he's fulfilling all the prophets in Luke 19 and on. And so what he's saying is this, is land equals the Garden of Eden. So really the restoration covenant is not a land covenant because God doesn't mean land here. He means land as in the blessings of God on the entire world. He means the Abrahamic covenant, that the whole world be included. And this is huge because the prophets keep saying over and over again, all the nations, all the nations, all the nations, all the nations will be in the land. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, what be, what, what's, what's so unique about Acts chapter 2? What does it say? That people from every language, tribe, and nation were there and began to hear them speak in their own languages. And the Spirit of God indwelled them from all 
the nations. That's the return of the Lamb. That's the beginning of the return of the Lamb. And so that's what he means. Now, right now, they're thinking only physical land. But remember, that's too small for God's vision. God doesn't want to redeem a little teeny land about the size of New Jersey. He wanted to redeem the entire world and all the nations. The land of Canaan was the beginning. So when God is promising the restoration covenant, and many Christians think of like just the land, the land, the land, and when Israel comes back to the land in 1948, they're like, oh my gosh, this covenant's... No, that's too small. God is bigger than that. And by the way, it happened back with Christ. That was the restoration covenant. And so this is what he promises, that I will begin to restore your land, what I really wanted from the very beginning in the garden. Second, Yahweh is going to regenerate your heart. He's going to circumcise your heart. Now, Moses in chapter 10 says, you guys can't do this. You need circumcised hearts. But that's all he says. Then God depresses the crap out of you with all these curses. And then he tells you you can't do it. But then in the Restoration Covenant, he says, I am going to circumcise your hearts. Now, remember, they can't obey the law because they don't have real hearts. They have cold, dead, hard hearts, according to Jeremiah. Which means, can they really truly repent and come back to God? No. Which means, the only way they can truly repent is if God circumcises their hearts. Which means, the land, the restoration covenant actually isn't a conditional covenant. It's an unconditional. Because the only way they can repent, conditionally, is if God changes their heart. But they can't change their heart, and they don't have the heart to want to have their heart changed, so God has to initiate it, which makes this really, truly an unconditional promise. And so what God is promising is a day will come when I'll give you a new heart, and that's the Holy Spirit, because now the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to actually want to obey, and it gives us the ability to actually be transformed by the renewing of our minds and actually start becoming these new creatures. And what we learn now through the Gospels or through the Epistles is that the new heart is not an instantaneous thing. It's a process. Now, is an event that leads to a process, kind of like childbirth. Childbirth is an event that leads to a process. And that's what God is doing. So the new heart will be an event where the Holy Spirit will come in that will lead to the process of Him slowly unhardening your heart and making it a real heart so that you can be this circumcised person. And notice how he's connecting the Abrahamic covenant. This is not connected to the Mosaic covenant. He's a circumcised heart because the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision, the cutting off the flesh that is producing toxic waste so that you can produce life. And God says, I'm going to do that to your heart now. So this actually connects you more to the Abrahamic than anything else. And so the Holy Spirit coming upon us fulfills that. So the Holy Spirit fulfills the first promise, restoration of the land, because now the land's in me. And then we begin to redeem the world as we join Christ. And then the Holy Spirit fulfills the second promise because he's the one that circumcised our heart. Third, Yahweh would judge Israel's enemies. And he would remove all evil in the world. And fourth, Israel would obey Yahweh and he would prosper them in their obedience. So in some ways, we're beginning to see 
the second two blessings fulfilled because as we embrace the Holy Spirit, we join Christ in redeeming the world and evil gets eradicated over time. And we begin to prosper what we do. But in another sense, the second two parts of the blessings cannot happen until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul calls the great mystery. Because we thought the Messiah was just going to come and do all this. A little did we know, it's a two-part step. Why? I don't know. It just is. 